Hi, this is Anton Madley. I'm the CEO of Peak Financing. We arrange financing for commercial real estate properties with a strong focus on multifamily properties. Uh, if you want to learn more about real estate investing, listen to my good friend Sam Newell's podcast, Recession Proof Real Estate Investing. Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. Join your host, Sam Newell, as he educates you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. Hear interviews with the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they've learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become Sam's goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. Anton, thanks so much for jumping on my podcast. We've known each other for, geez, a year and a half, and we finally made it happen. So thanks for making the time, and I appreciate yeah. it being on. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk. Let's get right into the, the nitty-gritty, talk about what you do, because the, the landscaping or the landscape for for multifamily loans has really changed since coronavirus and the shutdown happened. So talk to me really quickly about the changes that you're seeing and, and what's going on with multifamily lenders. Yes, it's only has changed uh, dramatically. On the positive side, just as, a, as an intro to it, I would say anyone who is a multifamily actually is very lucky to be a multifamily in the commercial space because the financing is still readily available, not for everything, but at least uh, we have access to financing. Compare that with other commercial real estate asset classes where you essentially have very little options right now. But let's go back to maybe mid-March when everything looked like the whole world would, would collapse, right? With COVID-19 really getting into the forefront with uh, country essentially shutting down in a forced fashion. And obviously that has had a massive impact also on the financial markets as, as everyone will remember when the stock market crashed, but it was not just the stock market. We also had the debt markets essentially coming to a halt. And that included CMBS loans, it included so-called CLO loans, because all of a big part of these loans are sold into the market where you and I or anyone else can buy securities that are backed by various commercial real estate loans, right? Mm -hmm. And naturally, whenever you have that type of situation when the market is crashing, no one really knows what's happening. Everyone holds back. So we need to stop. We don't know how to price. And... As long as we do not know that, we are not going to be willing to give you any price indication. So a lender wasn't able to price a loan. And on top of that, most lenders rely on so-called warehouse loans. They have access to credit lines for more lenders that fund their loans initially that then fund your project. And a lot of these warehouse lenders, they were no longer willing to lend because they did not really know how how safe that loan was. And on top of that, they also had act problems accessing the, the debt markets. Yeah. So for a period of maybe a week, the whole market essentially came to a halt. 
And during that week, even agency loan fundings sometimes were delayed by several days, right? And uh, that is, was extremely unusual. Even though obviously Fannie and Freddie, they have never said we are, we are not doing this loan and we are stopping to finance multifamily properties, some agency lenders were not able to get their funding in place on time at the planned closing date. So they had to push out some of these closings for a few days. But that was really just for a few days. And then things settled down more and more on the agency front. The CMBS side came to a halt and it's still very limited. There are very few transactions that are being done on the CMBS side. Bridge side, it's a similar situation where a lot of bridge lenders haven't come back yet. Some of them will never come back. And the same applies to CMBS lenders, by the way. And so you essentially have to assume that when you want a bridge loan, that you that property needs to be in a strong market, sub-market, and it needs to have a true upside to, to the property. And with that, obviously, they want to see that the operator is strong enough and experienced enough to actually turn that property around. Got it. Hey, that's, yeah, that, I feel like bridge loans, People have been taking advantage of those in a high-risk way. People who maybe didn't really have a ton of upside, they were relying on the market just appreciating to be able to, to finish their business plan and refinance out of those bridge loans. But really quick, before we get into that, yeah. um, help our listeners who may be newer investors or people trying to get into multifamily, can you break down CNBS, bridge, and agency debt, and what are the differences and, and advantages to those? Sure. Let's start out with, with the agency loans, right? Uh, because uh, when you are starting out, and particularly when you attend various events that talk about syndication, agency loans like Fannie and Freddie are at the forefront of that discussion. Mm-hmm. And essentially, as we have them on the single family side, Fannie and Freddie are supporting multifamily properties. They started out initially really to provide, to support properties that provide affordable housing in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. But in reality, today they they are covering all type of assets, including Class A. But when you look at their at their mandate, they still have the mandate to support affordable properties. And when it comes to B and C class properties, very often, obviously, they are affordable properties that Fannie and Freddie actually are more attracted to support because they need to fill their mandate and that supports the pricing. So you get better pricing on that. Now, within Fannie and Freddie, you have multiple programs. Some of them are easier for for newcomers to get into. Probably the one that is the easiest to get into is the so-called Freddie SPL loan. That stands for small balance loan. Now, small balance by commercial standards is up to 6 million or 7.5 million up to 100 units. So obviously compared to single family, that's not small, but mm-hmm. in the commercial domain, that's still uh, considered as a small amount. That's the loan right? amount. That's right. Yes. Yeah. 
uh, good point, yes. And then you have multiple programs that stretch beyond that. The SPL program, both on Fannie and Freddie side, they also support student housing, senior housing, e-mobile home parks can be financed through the agencies. You also have HUD loans, right? The FHA uh, loans that are longer term loans. They are more difficult to get into. The process usually takes six to 12 months, sometimes even longer to actually from application to close. It's a long process, but they have very aggressive, very low uh, interest rates, up to 35 years for an acquisition and for a new construction, 40 years plus the construction period. So very attractive if you can accept uh, the initial phase of, of having to go through that process. Now, uh, they, well, they let, all, let me just repeat what you just said, because that's really important. Why would someone take six to eight months? That's a long time to go through the process of getting a loan, but 35-year amortization and a really low interest rate is extremely enticing. If you're a buy and hold investor, sometimes it may make sense to get a bridge loan and then put in place that HUD loan where you have a low monthly payment because it's a 35-year amortization schedule and a really low interest rate as well. That's basically why people are willing to wait 6, 8, 10, 12 months to put a HUD, HUD loan in place, correct? That's right, yes, absolutely. And we see that a lot for, there are some syndicators that do it too, but we see it a lot uh, with families and individuals that want to build generational wealth, right? So they are not the, uh, the typical uh, investor that buys and wants to sell in five or seven years. They right. really want to build a portfolio. And for that type of investor, it's, it's really perfect, right? So right now you can get an all-in rate of, let's say, just as an example, three and a half percent. It can be lower for a larger deal, wow. including the mortgage insurance premium, which is which is required for 35 years. It's extremely low, right? And that's what makes it attractive. There are some disadvantages that you have a str a stricter reporting and all that. You also have uh, higher uh, replacement reserves initially. But in a way, it's not bad when you really have that long-term view anyhow, because they want to ensure that your property really is maintained to the standard that it has to, that the life of the property is really reaching all the 35 years and that right. it's not deteriorating. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. Back to the to the other programs. Obviously, CMBS. We have heard about CMBS loans in the single family space during the Great Recession. Right? So the CMBS loans were primarily the ones that that were used and to package them and sell to third party investors. Mm -hmm. And because mm -hmm. they were all sold to private investors, uh, including institutional investors. They were coming up with various ways to structure that to make it uh, easier for borrowers to borrow. So now the same uh, has also happened on the commercial real estate side, but it all fell apart in 2009, 10, 11, 12. But they slowly came back or for starting 2012, 13, 14. And until COVID hit, uh, CMBS loans were still a, a small segment in multifamily, non-recourse area, unlike when it comes to other commercial real estate where CMBS loans have played a much larger role. 
typically you would go into a CMBS loan when the property does not quite qualify for an agency loan that can be because maybe the occupancy is a little bit too low, the area might be too rough, the condition of the property might not be up to agency standard or the sponsor group may have some credit history or some other issues that would not allow them to qualify uh, for an agency loan. Maybe they walked away from an agency loan past in 2010 or whether it was, so you're still on the blacklist with Fannie and Freddie, but they would still be able to get into a CMBS loan. For recently, CMBS is commercial mortgage-backed security. So what does that yeah. mean, though? Because I feel like a lot of people don't understand what that means and why that's different than agency debt. Yes. The interesting part is a majority of agency loans are essentially commercial-backed securities, too. It's just not that in the industry jargon, we, we call, it, call them CMBS loans, we call them agency loans. But the process is very similar, right? An agency loan, there are some exceptions where, where the agencies actually keep them, but the majority of the loans originated by a lender, then sold to Fannie or Freddie, and then Fannie and Freddie or uh, institution that operates on behalf of them will package these loans and sell them as agency-backed securities in the marketplace. So they are have the, the guarantee essentially from Fannie or Freddie, but they're still securities, right? So you, it's like a CMBS loan. The difference is that it's quasi-government agency guaranteed, whereas on the CMBS side, the process is very similar. It's being originated, then they are packaged, and they are sold securities into the marketplace. Now, they are all these loans, they are structured behind the scenes in multiple tranches. So you have BP buyers and you have the higher quality buyers. So ultimately, you have the ones that take the first risk. If, if a pool defaults, then uh, the BP's investor, as we call it, will take the first hit. And once that is all gone, then the next tranche will get the hit. Right. So that's on a at the very basic level, that's how a CMBS uh, loan would work. Mm-hmm. But it's really very similar to, to an agency loan. When it comes to the prepayment penalties, they are different. How they handle the prepayment penalty on the agency side, you have maintenance and or defeasance, as it's called. On the CMBS side, it's always defeasance. It's and a, yeah. Define those really quick for us, because I feel like a lot of our listeners may not fully understand what that means. Yes. So with the yield maintenance, both programs, all these programs essentially want to ensure that the investor in that loan through the security is getting the return for the remaining life of that loan, right? So even if you as a borrower pay back that loan, they say, yes, you can pay back that loan, but we want to be compensated for the full term of right. that loan. So what essentially happens is with the yield maintenance, you would pay the difference between the interest rate, let's say it's a 5% loan, minus the treasury yield for that period. It's called treasury strip, but it's essentially uh, the, the uh, risk, risk-free 
reinvestment uh, rate. So you deduct that from, from the actual interest rate that you have agreed on that loan. And that difference you have to pay for the remaining life on the outstanding balance of that loan. Uh, so that's with the yield maintenance. With defeasance, it's the same thing what you have to do. The difference is that they actually uh, create a separate entity that buys securities, treasury strips towards the maturity that then sufficient amount so that these securities will provide the, the monthly income all the way to end to the end of the loan. For you as a borrower, when you pay back, it doesn't really matter financially that much. It's still the same. You ultimately have to pay that yield maintenance, right? It's just a different structure behind the scenes. So, got it. So here's a question. So we're looking at a loan right now. Let's say we're looking at a, a $10 million purchase price in, in Cleveland, a really strong B-class asset. And a lot of people are trying to do this right now, whether it's Cleveland or another market, let's say Cincinnati, Atlanta, who cares? But what's the best structure in your opinion? If this is maybe a value add deal and they're wanting to have the ability to refinance out some of the money in three to four years, but hold it long term, but the goal is to hold it for 10 plus years, would you go agency? Would you, what, how do they, what's the best scenario with defeasance or yield maintenance? How would you work that type of a deal? Yeah, I would say that the first question really, is there so much meat on the bone that it makes sense to go with a bridge loan? A bridge loan has its place and it's a very valuable product for the right asset and for the right sponsor. Meaning if there is a significant amount of upside in terms of rehab that needs to be done to the property, repositioning of the property and or the related rent increases that can be achieved, a bridge loan may be the, the right approach to this. But we only recommend bridge loans really in those situations when right. you have a significant, truly significant value add. I do not count uh, four or $5,000 per unit as a significant rehab, right? And right. That is a problem where a lot of syndicators in particular, because they wanted to maximize the, the loan proceeds, took these type of deals with a very soft value add and took out bridge loans. So there it's much harder really to speed up that value add value fast enough to get into an agency loan. And if everything goes wrong, then you're in a difficult spot a year or two years down the road. In those cases, it's really better to go with, with an agency loan. Now, obviously, yield maintenance is a significant issue there. Right? We know of, of many buyers that took out an agency loan with yield maintenance. And if they wanted to refinance today or sell the property today, they may have a, a prepayment penalty of 20% on that loan. Mm -hmm. So it's a very significant amount. So that can be overcome with different structures. One of them is to, to do a, a step-down prepay with Fannie and Freddie conventional. It's very expensive to do those. Mm -hmm. With Freddie SPL, it's very affordable. So if you're in that small balance space of 6 million or 7.5 up to 100 units, 
that's what we always recommend. Always go with step-down prepay because it's particularly with Freddy SPL, the difference between the step-down, the basic step-down prepay and the yield maintenance is just 20 basis points to 0.2%. So that's an extremely attractive premium yeah, to pay yeah. for that freedom to know at any point how much that uh, prepayment penalty is. Right. As you go into the conventional space, that premium increases significantly. Mm-hmm. It sometimes is right now. In the past, it was maybe with a family loan 30 basis points, 35. Mm-hmm. Now we have seen quotes that come in at 70 or 80 basis points. Wow. So wow. there, the premium is so steep that you may say that is no longer worth the additional cost. So yeah. now there, the question is, do you want to go into a floater, right? Where you essentially take out a floating rate loan and you have agency loans that support that. Naturally with that, now you're subject to interest rate exposures. So right, with that, right. the lender will require you to take interest rate cap protection. So the, you essentially buy separate interest rate caps. And it's not only required by the lender, but you have to do that anyhow for your own sake. Right? Right. The last or thing you want is to... Yeah. Yeah, as a risk prevention, you do not want to have a 3% loans at the start. And if short-term interest rates move up, suddenly you're at 7%, 8%. So you want that protection also for your own sake. So these are only that's a structure that you only can look at. The other option is just to go with a shorter-term loan. The problem is with the shorter term loan is you may say, I'm planning to sell in three years. So I plan to refinance in three years. The problem is if the situation changes, if the market changes and you're right. not able to sell then or refinance, now you have that capital event that you're facing. And in a worst case, you're not able to refinance or sell right. at that point. Right. Yeah. That, so that, that is that scares me. Approach. Yeah. So that kind of scares me. And the name of the podcast, you can't really see it, is recession proof. So yes. <laughs> I feel like in this where we at where we are at in the market, that would be pretty scary to take out a two, three, four, even a five year loan. Because if we drop hard, let's say we have a massive shutdown from coronavirus later this year or, or next year, based on what happened in two thousand eight, it could take three, four, five years for values to come back up. And so our goal is always to have a seven to 10 year plus loan. And yeah, that, that's a hard thing right now is we're looking at these deals where we want to be able to pull money out in three to four years, whether that's, there, there's different tactics and strategies to do that, but we would want to do a refi or really a supplementary loan. So talk to us about supplementary loans and why these investors to pull money out and, and do that? Because I feel like not everyone understands the thought process behind that. Sure, yeah. That's actually one of the reasons why we strongly recommend with the Freddy SPL always to go with the step-down prepay because these supplemental loans are not available for Freddy SPL loans. Mm-hmm. So then you're essentially stuck with whatever loan amount you have and you or a, a new buyer that can assume that loan but they can all add a supplemental. Right. So what the supplemental really means is a second mortgage, right? right. So you add right. a, an additional lien on top of it. It's provided by the same lender servicer that already has the first uh, mortgage in place, the senior loan in place. 
and as a general rule that can go all the way up to 75 percent of of the new value of the property obviously it's not the value as to what you have today the goal essentially is particularly of what you described you feel look it's too risky to go into a bridge loan, but we still feel that there is a lot of meat on the bone with this property. So let's get the, an agency loan, a any loan for whatever amount we feel is achievable, is, is at the reasonable risk, and we still can generate a decent return for our investors. That's the, is the strategy that uh, a lot of uh, syndicators and other investors deploy. And as we improve the property, as your business plan works out, you're able to raise the rents and you're possibly able to reduce the, the operating expenses. Obviously, rental line improves. Hopefully, the cap rates stay the same. Maybe they go down a little bit more and that turns into a, an increased value for that property. So you essentially force the appreciation with your operating skills to a higher level. And at that point, the new LTV is based on that value down the road, let's say three years from now. So that is limited to 75%. Now, the advantage is you deal with the same lender already has a senior loan in place, right? Mm -hmm. So they already know you. The disadvantage is that the interest rate is higher. So the term of that supplemental loan in most instances is terminus it's the same thing for the essentially ending at the same time when the senior loan ended so if you took out let's say a 10-year loan and you had a supplemental after three years seven years left on the senior loan and that supplemental loan would also be then seven years right uh, one of the disadvantages with the supplemental loan is that the interest rate is higher roughly 1% higher than a senior loan that you would take out at that point. Right? So if you right, take out, right. let's say, a senior loan on another property, three years from now, the interest rate, let's say, is three and a half. The supplemental on this property that you already own would be maybe four and a half. Right? So you pay a premium for that supplemental. Right. But then again, so essentially you return equity to your investors. So from a cash on cash return and ultimately also total return that you're able to achieve for your investors it's still very attractive, right? Yeah, and, and the deal that you just helped us on, we had a crazy assumption in Cincinnati and we actually brought you in to, to help us get it done because the, I won't name names, but the, the lender wasn't cooperating. Um, <laughs> but the advantage there is, and this is what we look for in all our deals, the rents were under market it, and we feel like we're going to be able to raise rents 100 possibly 200 over the next three years per door. We're repairing and renovating and increasing the net operating income. So increasing the cash flow. And just like you said, we're going to force it to appreciate. We're going to force the value up by better management, by higher rents. And it should be worth, let's say 20 million in three years. And so the huge advantage that a lot of our investors love is that we take that supplemental loan out and we return 50% of their money to them. Yeah. And that reduces their risk, number one, but it also allows them to compound their investment much faster rather than having their money sit for 10 years 
and not being taken advantage of, they're increasing their equity and their money is growing, but then they can pull that out and go invest in another deal and have their money keep rate uh, increasing on another deal. And it's a non-taxable event. You don't get charged uh, taxes by the government on a cash out refi or on a supplemental loan. So that's what we love. That's a business model we love. But for these people that are listening, Anton, how does defeasance work in conjunction or how does that affect your supplemental loan? And are there any things to look out for when you're trying to take out a supplemental loan? I'm assuming that the, the basic thing is you have to make sure the loan you're getting originally will even allow a supplemental loan in the future. But assuming that it is allowed, what, what other things can we look for? Or should we look out for? Yes. Uh, so f- with the majority of CMBS loans, there are some exceptions when they are specially structured, but the majority of CMBS loans, you cannot supplemental loans. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that is uh, essentially out. The majority of the supplemental loans really are done with a FANI uh, program, right? Mm-hmm. And so there you have the yield maintenance on that senior loan if you want to repay that loan down the road. And the same would apply to that supplemental loan. So you essentially would have a calculation of yield maintenance. Let's say you take out the 10-year loan today. Three years from now, you take out a supplemental loan. And then two years later, because you have a buyer coming in, willing to pay you an amount that you say, look, it's well for us to sell. So at that point, you have five years left. So the... Uh, assuming that you repay that loan rather than the new buyer just assuming your two loans, you essentially would have a yield maintenance calculation on your first uh, mortgage as well as a yield maintenance calculation on the supplement that you took out earlier. Makes Makes sense. sense. So so you're you're in your potential yield maintenance because you have a second mortgage, so that makes sense. What complications would people run into taking out a supplemental loan or anything else that you can think of that new syndicators or new investors may run into that it can't they don't usually or wouldn't usually think of or be warned of yeah so with if you are taking a supplemental loan out on a loan that you already have in place that you initially put in place when you bought the property the process is is pretty simple because they already have your file, they have received the reports, the financial reports, uh, everything from you. It's, it's probably the most uh, simple process to get an additional piece of a loan on top of it. Now, you still have to be careful there, right? Because you may underwrite to, it, to, the, to that supplemental loan you think that the line the rent appraiser agrees, agrees to it. So you're still subject to a new appraisal Mm-hmm. And as well as the lender feeling comfortable with that additional exposure, right? You, the the better the of a citizen you were with that lender throughout the the, the period when you already had the loan in place, the easier it is going to be, right? If they have a history where you didn't provide the report, sometimes sometimes you you may miss certain items for the request. There may be very of providing you in a, a supplemental, but if you did a great job, the chances to have a supplemental that goes through very smoothly is greatly improved. 
And when you buy a property and you want a supplemental, that changes the story quite a bit, right? Because you essentially deal with, with a lender. You cannot pick that lender, right? Because whoever that lender is who already has that senior loan doing your acquisition, you need to deal with that lender for the assumption itself of that initial loan. Right. And when you ask for a supplemental loan, obviously that lender may tell you, we don't feel comfortable, right? So they don't have to really to agree to it. Uh, because they are in the driver's seat. So there it's only important that you come in with a strong story and the management team that makes that lender comfortable. Makes sense. Awesome. My, My next question is, you've been doing loans for a long time. The name of this podcast is the Recession Proof Podcast. Would love to hear any mistakes you saw people make during the last recession and any mistakes people making now when it comes to buying multifamily and financing multifamily? Yeah, I would say the the mistake already back then was apart from the timing, right? You cannot control the timing. Sometimes you're just off with the timing and it's just bad luck. Right. But certainly what, what we have seen is already back then, where some borrowers went into aggressive, they, they over leveraged. And the CM, particularly with CMBS loans back then, the, there were CMBS lenders that actually underwrote to Proforma. So today, no permanent lenders, CMBS or agency lenders are underwriting to Proforma. So the British lenders are really the only ones, maybe hard money lenders and some banks, but CMBS lenders have stopped doing that. But back then, they underwrote to your Proforma. So obviously, wow. if that Proforma was wrong, you were underwater very quickly. Do you mention before, right, that you are scared just to go in with five years? That was also one of the major issues for a lot of owners at that point. They had a cash flow in property, right? But if you had to refinance the property in 2009 or 10, you essentially were having to access a market where there was limited availability of loans out there, right? So the agencies were willing to lend, but they were pretty conservative at that point. And at the same time, properties' values came down, right? So uh, so essentially what looked really good in 2005, let's say if you had a a five-year loan, that property, even though it was cash-flowing, during your holding period, no one was willing to refinance for that outstanding amount. So you had to bring in equity. And if you didn't have equity, what did you do? So a lot of owners were put in, uh, essentially pushed into the corner, not because of the cash flow issue the property had, but because it's not always the cash flow, it's also the valuation, right? So if a lender yeah. says, I'm not going above 75% of value, and unfortunately, at that point, the property values, and that's a lot of, by the way, a lot of multifamily inv- newer investors always hear the story C-class and B-class and multifamily is completely recession-proof. That is certainly much more recession-proof than other commercial real estate overall. But when you look back in 2008, 9, and 10, value still dropped 15, 20% for a period of one or two years, right? So uh, if you're caught right at that point, 
you are you just do not have the ability to refinance at the value that you need because the appraisal will come back with too low of a value. So that was a mistake back then, and I would say here today, we what what we see is that there is a, everyone can forget where we were in 2010, 11, and 12 when it comes to valuations. Yeah, and I I think. That is the biggest risk that we can take when we think, yes, it might be a small dip, but we will come back after a year or two. Hopefully that is going to be the case. But when you go in very aggressively with leverage and mass equity, mass debt, mezzanine debt, and or pref equity, I think a lot of operators will realize that the, their responsibilities or for for payments that they are committing to will be very significant as soon as the rents come down as soon as economic vacancy goes up and potentially even operating expenses move up we always assume that we can maintain operating expenses we just do not know absolutely uh, so, especially with so there is just not up. That's exactly right. Right, taxes is a massive issue in a lot of states. Uh, I'm based here in Dallas. Right, Texas mm-hmm. is uh, is one of the probably the craziest places when it comes to some counties are so aggressive in raising raising their valuations, their assessments, because they already foresee that uh, they have a shortage in tax revenue due to right. COVID-19. So sometimes you're able to uh, to fight it, sometimes you're not, right? But it's if taxes make up such a massive portion that that really can throw a, a stick into your whole operations very quickly. And what do you do when you don't have a, enough of a cushion? And that brings me really to the point Generally, particularly when it comes to syndicators, because they are put under so much pressure by other syndicators that are willing to push the envelope, that they are not raising enough equity up front, and then uh, not enough for rehab money. Some of them do not even raise all the money for rehabs. They hope that they can... uh, that the operations can support uh, some of the rehab down the road and virtually in all of these cases we see that they are running out of money at some point they stop the rehab and obviously the value creation that intended never happens (laughs) so it's good for you and other operators that want to step in but that's really the key issues i see not raising enough equity for that rainy day yeah, so let's, and I really appreciate you bringing that up. There are so many people making their numbers look better than they really are. And the market it, at the same time has made these operators look really good because the market's been doing amazing for so long. People have been getting great returns. They've been able to exit deals and move on to the next one. And the reason I started this podcast in the first place is because that I started getting really nervous in 2018 we're talking two years ago, the market has come up a ton in the last two years and people are still making those same mistakes. And I've had investors tell me, Hey, your deal doesn't look that sexy. It, it doesn't look that good. I'm like, that's because I'm realistic. <laughs> it's because I have a 55% expense ratio, not a 42% expense ratio. And I'm planning on the Cleveland deal we're looking at right now. Taxes were just under 200,000 last year. 
and we're looking at them going to 386,000 for this next year. And people asked us why. And I said, because I called the county assessor and that's what they told me. If you're not calling county assessor, you're just saying, oh, it shouldn't go up that much. That's dangerous. So the biggest point though, I wanted to bring away from this, this conversation with you. And I think it's really important is don't get caught having to refinance when values have dropped because even though you may be fine operationally cash flow wise you may not be able to refi so if you have a th- right now if you have anywhere from 1 to 5 years left on your current mortgage to me that says high risk because if we drop in the next 1 to 3 years it's going to take another 3 to 5 to get back up to values where you can potentially refi so right now we won't do anything under a seven-year loan. And it sounds like that was the biggest mistake you saw people make in the last recession. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, so you also brought up a, a good point, right, where everyone is trying to, to push showing returns that are better than what you are presenting. One of the things we see a lot, right, with these, again, soft, so-called soft value-add offerings, where they push the rents by... in year one. Sometimes it's feasible, right? When the in-place rents really are really low. So I'm not, sometimes I'm not necessarily disputing that the rents can be raised by that much. But what really puzzles me is that the economic vacancy of a property going in is, let's say, at 15% already. And they project that to bring that economic vacancy down to 10% in year one, while they are doing all the turns, doing all the rehabs, doing all the retenanting, it's just not possible. (laughs) But obviously, when you present the numbers that way, the cash and cash return for your investors look much better in year one and year two and year three when you take a realistic approach. I love it. And yeah, like the Cleveland deal we're looking at right now, all like 98% of the leases are locked in until May of 2021. So we actually can't raise rents this year at all. We'll close on it probably in October, November, and we won't be able to raise rents for six, seven, eight months. So we accounted for that in our numbers, but it's funny how people don't seem to think that's an issue. Yes. And you, when you talk to particularly passive investors that have invested in multiple syndication deals, a lot of them will tell you that over the last two or three years, their returns have not turned out to be as good as they were promised, right? And again, it's all driven by these year one, two, and three projections that were too aggressive. So they projected maybe 7%, 8%, and now they are down maybe at one or two, maybe three or five, but it's already low. And it's all driven by these aggressive projections. And that's even though they are still in the interest-only period. So we are not even talking yet about what's going to happen to the property once the interest-only period ends, let's say, in two, three, or four years. (laughs) Crazy. We're running out of time, but I did want to touch on where you're from. You have you have an accent. People can tell you're maybe not originally from America. So tell us a little bit about where you came from and how you got into commercial lending. Sure. So that strange accent is from a country called Switzerland. Uh, so I was born there, went to school there right after school. I, I went into banking. So I worked in 
with a large, uh, the largest Swiss investment bank and commercial bank in in New York for five years, in Tokyo for four years. Then we sold the division to a large British bank and I worked in Hong Kong for a number of years. And after I left and I started my own activities, advising family offices as well as on the investment side, as well as the financing side. Mm -hmm. And we have been arranging financing now for the last 15 years on our own. And before that, I did it for more than 10 years uh, when I was in banking. So I, I live and breathe commercial real estate day in and out. Awesome. Awesome. And where do you live? You're in Dallas, right? Are you in Dallas yes, itself right. or a suburb? I live uh, up in Frisco, which is... Oh, uh, Frisco's really nice. Uh, yes, yes. So it's one of the boom towns in, yeah. in Texas. Building fourplexes there and land was just too expensive. Our investors wanted us to be up there, but... Yeah, it is a boom town. Yeah, so you have to now go north of Frisco to find land that is still affordable to do that. So it's a crazy uh, place when it comes to, to construction even now. Right? It's a it's very investor-friendly place. So a lot of companies move in. Right? Just next to us, we have Plano. Toyota moved the U.S. headquarters. Right. Uh, from California here, right? So it's it's a very business friendly environment, and that's why why everyone moves here. Right? Same as Utah, yep, Texas yeah, and Utah. That's right. Well, yeah. and what's your family like, and what do you do in your time off? My son is a my daughter already uh, graduated, so she works in in the healthcare industry on the billing side. And our son is still in school. Yes, uh, he will just enter school, Texas A&M, and uh, tomorrow, actually, he will go back to nice, the campus. Nice. Uh, he is a core of a cadet there. Oh, he, is, cool. he will be very busy for the next, for the next year. Yeah. And uh, my wife and I, Sandra, we, we have been married uh, now for a very long time. We, she has been coming with me all across the world right so it's uh, we have had a, a crazy ride uh, mm -hmm. where we have been living we, we like to travel but we also like the mountains a lot like utah is uh, one of our favorite places to go skiing in, in utah well, no, nothing can beat uh, uh, utah powder right? oh yeah, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> so we suddenly spend a fair amount of time skiing and just being in the mountains when we when you take the uh, couple of days off. Nice. Very cool. Yeah, I, I'm all for Utah. I live <laughs> within an hour and a half of eight different ski resorts. So I, I love it. But tell us how to contact you and what can we promote for you? Obviously, you're a great lender. A lot of people in our group, our mastermind group, use you and rave about you. But what, I mean, obviously multifamily, but how else can we promote you and, and what can people reach out uh, to you for? So whenever you have a need for commercial real estate financing, please reach out to us. Right? We do all commercial real estate classes. As I mentioned, multifamily is only one of our major activities, but we, we cover all the other asset classes too. You can reach us at the peakfinancing.com. My email address is anton at peakfinancing.com, A-N-T-O-N 
peakfinancing.com. You also can send us an email at info at peakfinancing.com. So there are various ways you can reach us. We are on Facebook, we are on LinkedIn, we are on Twitter. So uh, wherever you want to reach us, uh, we, we are available for you. How can you help us? Just let people know when you're happy of, about our services, right? So that's referral business is always the, the best business. And so we are growing rapidly. So if you know of anyone who, who wants to join us on the originator side, we're certainly also okay. happy to talk to, to these individuals. Cool. Yeah. And I, you and I, before we started this podcast, we were talking about the Atlanta deal that my team's underwriting and you pointed out some really good points that I don't think they messed up on. They left on vacation. Both of them did. So we hadn't <laughs> finished the underwriting, but I really appreciate you being willing to sit down and say, Hey, here's what a lender's perspective is on this deal. Because I feel like a lot of people are underwriting their deals and then just hoping that the lender agrees. But I think it's really important to have someone like you who can sit down with us and say, hey, I, I think you need to have this and this. And you pointed out an extra $100 a unit for security because of that part of Atlanta that it's in. So I would encourage people to reach out to you because of your ability to help them underwrite, you'll point out and save them a lot of heartache and mistakes and just make the financing and purchase process go much more smooth. So I do appreciate your help there. And that's all we've got time for today, but I feel like maybe we should do a, an actual underwriting of a project. Maybe we'll get this Atlanta deal under contract and we can review what you and I talked about. And I think that'd be a really good follow-up to this discussion. Sure. That would be great. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. All right, Anton, <clears throat> thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being on the Recession Proof Real Estate Podcast and uh, we'll talk again soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Sam.